some gravy in your ear this is wavy gravy uh temple of accumulated air and voice of woodstock telling you you are listening to kboo portland at 90.7 fm the 90s are the 60s standing on your head yow Spark Plug. Stunning. New sounds every other Wednesday 3 a.m. to 5.30 a.m. Join us and get connected. Welcome to the Talking Earth for mid-July. I'm Dan Raphael. Have as usual a trio of fine poets, unique voices, a variety of perspectives and subjects for you tonight. And I, Bold Hardigan, Joe Softy, and Kelly Terwilliger are here. And we're going to dive right into our first poet. Um, heck, you don't want to hear me that much. And I Bone Hardigan is a Portland poet whose third full-length book of poetry titled O Orchid, O Clock is forthcoming from Omni Don, publishing in uh, spring 2023. You'll hear some of that tonight, as well as from our previous books. Our chapbook, The Seawood, Seaweed Said Treble Clef, a sequence of poems and photographs, was published in May last year by Oxide Press, and she's also the author of Pool Five Choruses from Omni Don Publishing. Her two full-length books have both been finalists for the Oregon Book Award in Poetry. Her work has appeared in numerous journals, and she has contributed to and do collaborative projects with writers and artists for the Pacific Northwest. And here she is. Hello, I'm so happy to be here reading for Kebu and with my longtime colleague, Dan Raphael. 
So I'll be um, starting with reading a little bit from my forthcoming book. It's called O Orchid O'Clock, coming out in 2023 from Omnidon. And it does, in fact, deal with clocks and time and our time. This first poem is uh, called An Hour Entry. There are these hour entries and second entries and other forms in the book. The hour entries are prose poems. This particular one was written a number of years ago dealing with receiving the news of mass shootings and that kind of challenge of taking in that kind of unfathomable news. Um, tragically, here we are again in that grief with the recent shooting in Uvalde, Texas at Robb Elementary and in Buffalo, New York, at Top Supermarket and others. My heart goes out to all who are affected. This is called our entry when John Adams wrote. Another toll, another count of automatic weapon casualties, another occasion of America losing track of its math. I read today that when John Adams wrote 13 clocks were made to strike together, clocks were a tolling of public event, rung, an occasion or station and sun. I slept and woke, I slept too long and woke. I tried to count the measured world by reading read 13 clocks, read the late morning sun slant, read the current count outpaces past casualty counts, read just 3% of adults own half of America's guns. Something automatic in measure, too automatic. I woke out of 9.25 hours of sleep I calculated automatically upon waking. I saw a crow out the window that was the occasion of a crow pecking frozen specks, read the headline leaking into headlines, saw the orchid's opal sky calculating nothing. I have an inclination to stream, and I don't know what it means today. I have an inclination to lie in my husband's shoulder crook and let the day snow drift, let the dimness become wide, so a shoulder is a kind of stream too. The argument is made that the streaming of time is a perception trick. The argument is made that we have moved past occasion to incremental measure, that we are obsessed with measure and stricken. I have an inclination to obsessively stream, to rise and move not through incremental measures of occasion, but through water. The early clocks were water clocks, but it was shown that water was imprecise, was subject to pressure and pour. Even streams of consciousness can encounter depths and brim. I am conscious of my husband's warmth because of more than his warmth. Do not mistake headlines for measure. We were held in God's soft pocket. Do not mistake automatic grieving for water. This next one is called You Be the Woodcutter. There were more of us than I could count in the clock, more notches, shifts, triggers, more misaligned stream. I asked for foxes to appear in between our footsteps. I asked for someone to draw wider leaves between the alarms of the lilies before they closed up. You be the woodcutter, I'll be the water wheel. You be the crescent moon, I'll be the three trio. You be electric, I'll be particulate. You be the pendulum, you be the sun. There were more of us in water clocks, more in violent time-held streams. More than once a child, I slipped my body into the tooth of a blowhole and stood there as the coolness rose, the water surface rose, swirled to the brink of anything held, more of us than water wells. You be the clock face, I'll be the flatness. You be the pendulum, I'll be the weight. You be the fingerprint, I'll be the wine knob. You be the off-on, you be the sun. Between the actual notches, I thought if I could find, between the 20-point headline, X dead, trigger moon, school shooting, X flood, if I could find, between the sitting disbelief, the ring and tick, I thought if I could X out the most actual minuscule nicks of present love. You be the cuckoo bird, I'll be the finial. You be the water wheel, I'll be the spring. You be the southern six, I'll be the night ticks. You be the orange wood, you be the sun. Every hour, there was a melody inserted in which time stretched into a spell in which a cuckoo bird emerged and the kids would run to it, clamber up the sofa to see the wooden bird emerge and stand tiptoed, unstable, inside the melody.
our entry, all bells must hold all clocks. The clock's etymological root being cloca, being bell, a nerve root shivering roundness, a medieval prayer alarm, a cradling sound shell. The bell a striking into the temporal, then a tide pool retraction. The bell an oscillating fraction of the friction of continuance, pulling water instants out and out and out. Our entry, I was, caught, I was entirely caught up in the testimony. I was entirely caught up in the testimony. There was an exit by the grandfather clock. Everyone who read the testimony put a stethoscope to every word and heard a tick. It was entirely American to be tangled up in headline wire hanging on incident fray. The American words grandfather clock wired to an 1876 ballad about a clock that allegedly, after its first owner passed away, lost its sink, and after its second owner passed away, stopped ticking entirely. Children would testify to where they were in the school grounds when a lockdown started. I would testify to virtual grief. The former director of the FBI would testify to words spoken in a room, would testify to the exit by the grandfather clock, a stethoscopic metal-to-skin mid-century American coolness. The room was a kind of clock fissure, and there was water pressure in the gears, the room and the instruments of our instruments exposed. We were sick of being material or trying to be material, subject to being American or trying to near subject one or the other. We tried to enter by exiting time, by information trying, an entirely stymieing American tip. Second entries, fiddle panic. Fiddle panic, silent tent, agony point, gingerbread joint. This is the last one I'll read from this project. It's called Some Questions About Temporal Government. What is not a clock in this house? Is the imported eraserless nod number two pencil the tiny bent metallic bucket at the pencil tip a clock? Is the beloved crawdad, J&M cod, sloshed home on a Saturday from Blue Lake a clock? Is the metallic goldfish knick-knack a gift from a past boss's China trip 20 years back a clock? What workday is not the first workday I ever worked as a kid? The strangeness of time being clocked. What first paycheck to a poor kid is not a wound knob? What ten fingers are not a clock? I'm counting to ten with a toddler. Is the toddler toddling a clock? What rotting tangerine is not a clock slung? What policy bucket? Is a president's term a clock? Is empire? Is a fake raindrop recorded on a cell phone app? Is the forgotten child game making strawberries talk a clock? Is it jinx? Is a skipped meal? Is a stained sink? Does the clock dance? Is the pain of empire's clock? Is the vertical chain of the cuckoo? Is the vertical growth of wealth? Is the rooftop? Is the sinking rooftop? What is not a clock in the cockhead? What is not a translucent instrument of instruments? Is Jay coming home at three or four? Who is picking up whom today? Is the see-through pinkish skeletal fabric home? What is not expiring from its gear, from its policy, from its prayer, from its body? Is government for or of? Does love destroy clocks? What is not a crawdad cut digging itself in and out of tiny rocks? What, what, what? That's a taste of that book coming soon. Um, I'm going to read just a couple of poems from my last book. It's called Cool Five Choruses, uh, and it is a book that deals with this kind of notion of the chorus as a way of residing and this question of what are we part of and what are we not, the way voices are sometimes singular, sometimes multiple. I started um, writing this book when we were in the Iraq War. There's that kind of reckoning in it. This first one is called Empty Lot, and it is, has two voices, so you can probably figure out which is which. Empty Lot. It was a field full of weeds instructing presence, 
The presence of the weeds signaled absence of our hands. Oblivious seeds, strategic thorn. It was a field full of accidental lace, demanding presence. The presence of the war put more presence on our hands. Oblivious seeds, strategic thorn. Look at your hands, cracked with clearing, a bouquet of leaves and stems already limp. It's from the field full of weeds instructing presence. The hands are tired from pulling squid roots larger than flowers already spent. Oblivious seeds, strategic thorn. And this is called, they say the word porous. They say the words deploy and coding and spirit and seize. They say the words forests and porous and humvee and seed, as if all the same, all the same light, as if all the same fighting through leaf, Morse code and night, light at the center, missions and moats, courses of battles, courses of choruses, notorious light, hide in the throat, as if all the same, as if all the same, might be the throat coding the night, might be the forest, forest the voice, horse in the quiet, light pulping through. They say the words mulching and marching and missile and through. Who were you then coughing off light? Might be the forest, might be the chorus. You were, of course I am, stemming from this. Might be the missile missing the night. You were, of course I'm not, stemming from this. Forcing light quiet, might be the forest rescuing leaf. Next, I'm going to read something not published. I wrote this uh, at the very start of the pandemic when we were in the strictest lockdown and when there was just so much horror at how fast people were being taken with this disease. And one of the things that was happening in my neighborhood is people, with people being in isolation, as kids and families were drawing and scribbling things on the sidewalk in chalk. Wonderful things. I took photos of some of the chalk drawings, um, and one of them was this blue chalk star. I wrote this little short series called Quick Blue Star, looking at this photo. Quick Blue Star. Five gestures like five sisters, like five hairpin turns, but no one thinks five seen the star. No one thinks there is someone from whom one catches even this, how to form quickly in one figure, Choosing a point, then scrawling northeast, southeast, northwest, then quick straight west, then lower left, fastening gesture to chalk, gesture to call it a star, and to repeat it indefinitely, as if the star's signature shooted automatically from your five fingers. No one lingers too long in that quickness. Quick blue star. Pressed hard into the caked rash of concrete, so blue almost white, so home is a flicker, so blue is a chalk blue in the light of the unattended. People went to the hospital quickly, alone, so even shower curtains suggest surgical caps, so even our brains suggest waiting room linoleum, how fast some shimmers went at 7 p.m. daily, some unattended Kids stepped out of screen doors, clanging some pots and pans, given from inside permission, devouring commotion. Quick blue star, ferocious night note, forced good insignia, reflectionless, invisible contagion. You see them too, you don't. Don't write anything that can't be written in the wake of unattended corpses in refrigerated trucks tucked in under this. Quick blue star, quick wrist, quick child, quick mother, father, crouching. It is a pickaxe, it is a thrown jack, it is a claw stuck in the rock, punctuating, puncturing cliffside, not punctuating, but crawling its way up, stab by stab, crevice by dust-torn crevice in order to hang on to the rock face, hang on to the vertical, impossible mockery of your lived valley, hang on to your own beauty, like a wind 
you never noticed before the slightness of that wind. And I am going to end with just a little poem from a chapbook of mine that came out last year, which is called The Seaweed Said, the Seaweed Said Treble Clef. It's published by Oxide Books. And it's a book that is best experienced in person because it's a series of both photographs of seaweed and poems written from those forms. I'm going to read the very last small poem in the series. And this is for all the writers and makers out there and for the wonder of the process. And what did you make at last? And who did you hear in making? Made an ampersand and made a swaddle, a fiddle, made a ladle, the tiniest ladle, the thinnest, most possible ladle, made a series of chances to lift. Heard the sand sift itself and leak nearness, not witnessed. It was a sea take of tangled action, a deduction from the unmade golden brink. Hey, welcome to the Talking Earth for mid-July. I'm Dan Raphael. I have, as usual, a trio of fine poets, unique voices, a variety of perspectives and subjects for you tonight. Endai Bogue-Hartigan, Joe Softy, and Kelly Terwilliger. And we're going to dive right into our first poet. Uh, Endai Bogue-Hartigan lives in Portland. Her third full-length book of poetry titled O Orchid O'Clock is forthcoming from Omnidon Publishing in spring of 2023. Her chapbook, The Seaweed Said Treble Clef, a sequence of poems and photographs, was published in May of 2021 by Oxide Press. And she's also the author of Pool, Five Choruses from Omnidon Publishing and a couple other books. Her two full-length books have both been finalists for an Oregon Book Award. Her work has appeared in numerous journals and she has contributed to do collaborative projects with writers and artists throughout the Pacific Northwest. So here's Endai Bogartigan. Thanks, Endai. And uh, just going to move right along with, with poetry here. It's uh, it's fun doing this show. I kind of try and track people down and, you know, like I had four people I tried to contact where the show never got back to me and one person had a good excuse and uh, and next up uh, Joe Softy he's lived in Portland uh, almost three years and this is his first reading in town I mean we really do need more reading venues in town I mean live ones radio ones TV let's have poetry billboards dancing billboards but uh, Joe Softy's 10th book The Secular Divine is just out from Spite and Dival it's a hybrid chapbook of poems with an essay. It was preceded last year by the Oregon Trail from the same press, and next year a book of his essays, Poetry and Heresy, will be published by Mad Hat Press. Busy guy. His own trail to Oregon included stops in California, most recently in San Diego, where he taught writing and literature, Sa Seattle, Boulder, Bolinas, and the Czech Republic. He's now in Portland, where he's studying the language of trees. Here's Joe Softy. This first poem doesn't have a title. Imagine pulling the trigger, bodies crumpling and bursting in front of your weapon. Pure instinct now. 18 more shot if a few seconds later. The bullets pierce your armor, the rush of death, the twisted synapses, the seamless transaction, the endlessly repeated tweets conferring legitimacy the bestowal of blame, the strict poetic form. This next poem is called Prophecy. And like many of these poems, it's not an altogether positive prophecy. <laughs> in the future, humanity will be optional, not available in all areas. Most of us will be hooked up to machines with constant opportunities to offload. There will still be people who are interested in the arts, who drink wine and wear interesting clothes, but they'll live in out-of-the-way places that don't look the way we remembered them, with different weather patterns. The conversations will seem familiar, but after we've been in one, 
we won't remember a thing about it. This is a, a poem from where I came from, Southern California. Yes, I'm one of those people. This poem is called Goodbye La Jolla. Man on freeway punching his cell phone near stalled car. Aggressive Mercedes drivers whiz past at 85. Gardening truck in the slow lane. Languid pines drooping in hazy sunshine. Eucalyptus, slender, graceful. All the other trees too snotty to change colors. The calm of the entitled. Hoodies and sunglasses in 70 degree weather. And these, these short poems are uh, from a section called Retirement in my book, The Oregon Trail. And when one thinks about retirement, one thinks about the ultimate retirement. This is a poem from my old friend, Joanne Kiger. So soon, I needed more instruction in the everyday. Cody lying luxuriously in the front yard, belly up, light wind blowing across the sagging tree dahlias. You never had time for sadness, so we'll feel it for you. Vibrant one, mocking one, just space. I want to read a couple of poems from another section of the Oregon Trail called Hermes the Thief. I do return again and again to Greek mythology. Maybe I'll close with one. But these poems were all about the Greek god Hermes. Muse, sing Hermes, the inconstant one, human on my faithless arm, the breaker of oaths, slipping free from bonds, sliding from commitment, ashes floating, the disappeared. Squirrel clambering along telephone line, speedboat down the Willamette. Astrology is the Trismegistus part, the psychopomp, the system maker. Hermes is the squirrel. The three sisters of Hermes are inspired when they fed on the golden honey and want to pronounce truths. If, however, they are kept away from this sweet food of the gods, then they try to lead you astray. The marvelous and mysterious peculiar tonight may also appear by day as a sudden darkening or an enigmatic smile. He becomes preapically aroused through catching sight of a goddess. The first evocation of the purely masculine principle through the feminine. The original Hermes had no special need of a love affair with Aphrodite in order to beget Eros. He possessed her as his feminine aspect, perhaps even the more prominent part before the masculine nature in him became aroused. When the gods died, Hermes was taking a siesta, his winged shoes on the pebbles underneath the chaise. It's true he caught something on the wind, as they say, but messages take work, and right now he just wanted to lie back and sip a cold one. Nectar, of course. If he'd known what life would be like without that Olympian brand, he might have flown up in alarm and looked for a likely victim to trick out of certainty. But what would get through to us? Any hint of mythos muffled behind our secular masks? Aspen's quiver reflecting on the cell phone screen as the signal goes out of range. We're recording this on a, a bleak day in American history, yet another one. Uh, 
as the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade. So in these uh, last couple of poems from the Oregon Trail, I wanted to read a, from a section called Yahats, Oregon. Most people in Oregon will know of Yahats, my favorite beach town. And here are, here's a section of, of that. In those days, the archetype man was without question heterosexual, physically strong and muscular, sexually dominant, unemotional, stoic, and non-communicative, and committed to the hierarchical power of the status quo. However, female power helped erode the once mythologized and real power of the hyper-masculine male. One consequence is that the 21st century male is sensitive, emotional, multisexual, and questioning of the status quo. The traditional link between patriarchy and hypermasculinity has come to be represented by blue-collar or working-class men, represented by construction and factory employees, firemen and policemen, working-class men who take orders or lack status in other ways, resort to hypermasculinity in an attempt to regain social status. Neither the United States nor Great Britain had established sovereignty over the Pacific Northwest. Both countries wanted it and had some sort of claim, as did the Russians and the Spanish. But Lewis and Clark were the first white men to enter present Idaho, Washington, and Oregon by land. Although they never planted a flag to make a formal claim on the territory for the United States, they acted as if it were already theirs. Yahat sits at the base of the Oregon Coast Range along the Pacific, 44 degrees north, 124 degrees west, home to hiking trails, Cape Perpetua, sea lions at Strawberry Hill, Devil's Churn, and the best fish and chip stand on the Pacific Coast, Luna Sea, commemorated in a Lee Konitz album of 1992. So um, I'm fond of the poems of the Oregon Trail. I, um, as I say, they were the poems that I was writing when I first moved here in 20, 2020 and 2021. I wanted to read a couple of poems, though, from my new chapbook that's coming out. It's called The Secular Divine. What is the secular divine? That's a really good question. Uh, I, I try to uh, answer it with an essay and some poems and probably fail miserably. But anyway, here are a couple of poems from that chapbook. Driving the freeways, exit ramp off the interchange, around back alleys requires no particular skill Play it as it lays, past fast food fist joints, shortcuts to the water. If I could find my way, the geography of dream, moving me always north to the top of the map where the water is. Movement is pleasure, the twisting of an ankle, the body intruding on the mental landscape, does pleasure need instruction? Sips from a thermos, left hand grips right wrist, changing the level of love, waves upon waves. I wrote something like this once to a co-ed at UCLA, sitting on the grass, outside the palace of higher learning. Doré's Heretics, sixth circle, half in and half out of the grave, carrying death's scent. From the Greek, heresis, a taking, choice. To make a choice could always be the wrong choice. It seemed good at the time, but now you're under the earth, in touch with the depths, Tartarus, hidden from the everyday, 
distant from the mainstream. A world, but not that world. Autonomic nervous system, similar to dream. Not the same as religion, which obscures the simple truth. We're alive because of love. The day dawns. That's its only task. Some people say there's light at the end of the tunnel, but at the end of that tunnel is another one, endless and indestructible. Isn't that what Williams said? The day seems like a chance to forget the night, which waits for all of us, and sometimes accompanying us, accompany us, us during the day. These poems are kind of a day book, so sometimes the dates are part of them. Today, 2-11-22, the latest solar noon, according to Earth Sky News in the morning inbox. Not a clock event, they add, but natural, non-statistical. That passing instant when the sun reaches its highest point for the day, midway between sunrise and sunset, 51 days past the solstice as Halloween was 51 days before it. The lesser mysteries took place around February or March. Two goddesses become one, divine elusis in September. The lesser mysteries will have to do for now. Ukrainian poets in translation, dismantling the language syllable by syllable. Reading Maximus again. Olson wasn't kidding about an actual earth of value, subterranean and celestial, Saturn and Jupiter. Mythology not a substitute for what goes on, but there, all the same, in the background, what poets turn. These big essential things aren't going to run away. The poetry of effect, archaic, never political. Otherwise, it's just art. And this is the last poem of this sequence. Mostly cloudy day on the forecast still allows a few minutes of unadulterated sun, a rarity this Portland spring. April is the rainiest month. I like how Robert Kelly's poems stitch everything together, from the pebbles on the beach to everyday acts of holiness wiping tears from a lover's eye. The red flowers that have sprung up over the last few days are called bleeding hearts. My wife's health is poor, many tests scheduled, that time of life. Lawrence wrote a story called Sun in which the main character, a woman, has an almost love affair with the sun. The morning started with faint hints of the miraculous, first leaves of a skinny ash tree transplanted Pacific Redwood, 12 feet high and climbing. An Akhmatova poem posted on Facebook called The Miraculous. She had reason to consider such things mere privileges for the rich. The treaty of breast Litovsk's breast showing through a negligee objectified in death. Ukrainian poets in translation, witnessing the horror, the language coming apart, syllable by syllable another day in the secular world. And uh, finally, my most recent poem, I think, where I return to Greek mythology. Uh, so I'll close with this one. It's called uh, Eleusis. Persephone rises like baseball half the year, lately disfigured by wildfires, drought, war crimes, genocide. She might as well have stayed below where labor disputes are invisible. Persephone has no personality, always the lost one, the gap in the pattern, nagging feeling of loss. She must have been here because she sure feels gone. Persephone loved her mother but never let her know most of her life was underground. The only things that surfaced were hard to decipher. 
summits of sunken mountains. Persephone, not like her mother, or Gaia, or any other earth goddess, she rules the underworld, invisible, imaginary. She can't be seen. She only smiles. Nobody speaks her language. Blooms are miraculous, but only because of what can't be uttered. One of the ancient ones makes the voice falter. The only goddess described as ineffable. The poets preferred to speak of her without a name. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Joe. And uh, if you listened to the show before, you know I often throw in poems by others and myself. But but this time I just like the way the, the particularly like the way the three poets fit together. So I'll just give you an uninterrupted trio and see if there's time for something else towards the end. So batting third is uh, Kelly Terwilliger. Uh, she's the author of two collections of poems: Riddle, Fishhook, Thorn Key, and A Glimpse of Oranges. She's a former editor and author with the Early Press Poetry Collective. She's also a visual artist and professional storyteller. She works as a writer, storyteller, and artist-in-residence in public schools in Oregon, and has taught oral storytelling at Williams College in Massachusetts. She's currently working on a collection of writing and visual works, an anthology of poems of address, and a video library of oral stories. And here's Kelly Terwilliger. Hi. I'd like to start by thanking Dan Raphael and the Talking Earth Show for inviting me to participate in this reading. I think for me, poetry often arises when I bump against the limits of myself. And given that I have plenty of limits, this might imply that poetry is just constantly upon me. And maybe it is, but I don't always hear it. I'm going to start with a poem called This Other Life. I'd like to have one, one cow in my sight line, one steady animal doing its thing. But I do, don't I? The tortoise making slow rounds of the house, shuffling across the floor. The tortoise someone else passed on to me when they decided to get a dog. Sometimes it looks in my direction. Is it reproach? Probably not. But I feel it all the same, this life in my hands. Do I know what to do? Have I done it? Live, live, the jays call in the mornings. Sharp, bright, blue-black cacophony. The tortoise retreats under the sofa, safe or dark or closer to the world of dust and nuance. When he dies, it will be on me. I won't know how he lived or whether he liked it. I'll just have this other life then, won't I? This next poem is called Us Swimming, and it's in four parts that both connect and stand on their own. So many stories, moments, encounters are like this. You can pluck them out. Ah, look at this. But they also interconnect. Us Swimming. One, all they could talk about the next day in class were the dead fish. Everything else fell away, but the trout they cut apart, the raw flesh they saw from the inside, shapes, slippery, they felt them still. One boy said he pulled out the eyes, and then he said he could put his fingers into those empty sockets. They looked like new eyes, he said, his fingers did. And bang, the table tipped. If you keep talking about it, another boy yelled, this is what will happen. The floor strewn with papers, the room tilted, the fish. Two. Some take their dead and quarter them to be eaten by birds and wolves. I read this in a book, and it seemed right. But could I ever sever your arms from what had been? Three. Prison inmates who have done unspeakable things choose to sit with the dying who have done unspeakable things. The old questions are put away. I will give you a sip of water. I will cut your hair. I will cover your feet when you can't reach them. In your going, you will teach me what this means. 
Outside, cicadas wind up their hot summer sound, the distant streets already loud with sirens. Four. Give us a day with no sirens, just water splashing, laughter giddy the way a kid laughs when water plays around him. Light spilling sideways, like a boy I once saw trailing behind his mom. Skinny legs jump, jump sideways, lambkin, kid goat, one foot, two. There was a story in his head I couldn't see. A story that kept escaping into the reaching limbs of the trees. This next poem, Fish, Not Fish, seemed to just ask to follow. Fish, not fish, and the river, sleek and slack and silver under the gray sky when something tilted in the shadows gleaming, something dead, not dead, but almost. Dead, it tightened, beautiful, not beautiful, belly up and pale orange underfins like soft veils moving, small louvers of gills precisely moving, not dead, but dying, not beautiful, but beautiful. Something frayed along the hidden curve where it deepened to the dorsal, something clinging or falling, damaged or diseased, scales upruffled, loose, something drifting, something lost. Well, why not? Why not ease the dying, the not fish, with a little push into deeper water? Why not? And where, how, when the almost not slips and turns and swims strong into the current, its frayed back, once caught and torn and dropped, still shining, now shining, again into the folding current, the deep belly we want to hold us, yes, to hold us moving. Well, these poems are growing more and more watery. I grew up on the coast, and images and sensations from that world stay with me. This next poem is called, I Went to the Beach to Remember How to Be Vast. I went to the beach to remember how to be vast, but I was distracted by the uneasy we of the woman in the restaurant from the day before. How are we doing today? Are we ready for something to eat? Do we need some more time? Who are we, I wanted to ask, and felt unkind. The water never stops moving, and the sky never stops moving, and the outgoing tide traces long and perfect curves, lines of random passing left precisely where the last wave turned. I'd like to take you now, whoever you are, to the beach I love the most. We can be the moving dots on this map of departures, and the sea can enter our minds. But I can't guarantee we won't stand out, that someone won't show up with a gun to rip a hole in what had been a seamless afternoon. The trees are innocent so far. The huckleberries? I ate five. They were intense and sweet, even this late. As for the ocean, has it ever been pure? So much washes into this last embrace. How long is eventually? Until everything dissolves until everything turns into somebody else. We'll go home, and there'll be a buck at the bottom of the road, one antler hanging down, swinging like a broken door. Poor baby, we'll say, and mean it. Each time he turns his head, that thing wobbles, pulls, but there's no jumping out to save him. The world stutters. We have to dodge ourselves and enter the green, rocking, swaying, to hear through the downpour of space what yesterday's woman was really saying, her mouth full of bridges, bottles, a valley of pears, to see how a tree grows right up through her, the surf pounding inside, all around us. And another coastal poem. 
listening from the jetty at the harbor's mouth. The channel buoys call across the harbor's mouth, one note and then another, like distant birds who hoot in perfect intervals. I mean the pitch of notes, the space between them, not the time, though time is always there, rocking back and forth, the buoys swaying, high note, low note, then a third, the deeper drone of bass or organ slowly fading, breathing out once more. The sea is groaning. You can hear it. If the earth has a sorrow, the sea will be the one to say it. And the wind shakes the trees behind the dune. And the white-crowned sparrow sings again, again. We are rocking. We're awake. As the white-crowned sparrow sings. And the wind shakes the trees behind the dune. If the earth has a sorrow, the sea will be the one to say it. And you can hear it. The sea is groaning, breathing out an organ slowly fading to the deeper drone of bass beneath the buoy swaying. High note, low note, rocking back and forth, time is always there in the space between them, in the intervals, the tilt and pitch of notes like distant birds, one and then another, the channel buoys calling across the mouth of harbor. These next poems I'm going to read, I consider poems of conversation. Turning. I was ready to play. Everything lidded with cold, the old man breathing his last winter. The child made an airplane out of chairs and I climbed in. My seatbelt, a padded stick from another game, laid across my lap. The orange marker, a lever. We banked and turned, and there were clouds on the rug underneath us. I see the bridge, I said. We're getting close, she said. We flew to Winnipeg and made a fire on the rug there. The rocks became potatoes, and we checked them again and again. Too sour, she said, and I agreed. They needed more time in the fire. Outside, the streets glazed with ice. Outside, outside, the grandfather lay dying. We played hard. She chipped at fossils under the sofa's cushions. She blew them off, the small dust of time disappearing, the ancient imagined held out in her hand. Sketching in the Cemetery A sign said, funeral in progress, but all I saw were trees and stones that seemed to ask to remain undisturbed. A few people entered. Nobody left. I sat on the steps and drew a tree, some houses behind a fence, neighbors of the dead. The fence had a comforting precision, wooden slats, measured, smooth, and little spaces near the top to let the light through. The tree was a pine, which means something. Longevity, rebirth, the delicate needles outsprayed from every twig, and two blooming cherry trees peeked over rooftops, pink clouds waving if a color can wave. I was drawing in black and white. The graves gray beside me didn't make it into the picture, but I can point to where the pink was if you want. Did the funeral never end? A woman eased her silent, lunging dog up the steps where I still sat. The dog could have grabbed my face with its jaws, but it didn't. She would have warned me, I'm pretty sure, if I had been in any danger. I do consider that a conversation poem, even though there's little conversing. This next one is Buying Fabric at Joanne's. We watch, she and I, the bolt of fabric turning into the flag of itself, the heart of it dropping thump, thump, thump on the counter. How much do you want? Her hands as she smooths the yards and lines them up, 
as she slides and cuts along the trough, the scissors straight in their tracks, and every cut amplified to a kind of grinding, a gritty, sturdy work that settles in the throat, the jaw, dividing cloth into pieces of soft cloth. Does she dream these sounds after all day cutting? No, she never remembers her dreams anymore. Even after she stopped the medication, the dreaming never came back, and the street is wild at night, parties, midweek, and how can a body sleep the way it's meant to? Some guy walked into the courtyard and knocked at the door at 2 a.m. Maybe a creep. Maybe just drunk and lost. Yeah, she said. We gotta lock the door. You never know. Even if they don't mean any harm, they can do it. My dad, she said, did terrible things. Didn't mean to. He was whacked. But still... That's right, you find a way to live in a place. She's putting the bolts aside, shaking out the wrinkles between caution and compassion. She's folding up the new length. She's handing it across. This last poem is called Some Rocks and a Log. And I'll just confess, I suppose it'll be obvious in the poem, but I am one of those people who tends to pick up rocks wherever I go. Some rocks and a log. Inside, I still think I will live forever against all the signs because the child mind in me can't fathom not thinking or touching the faces of now and now and now and tomorrow, which is why when I remember how I live within the skin of time, I cannot look for very long. And when I go to the beach of rocks, I pick up one or two or three each time. A smooth one, an orangey, this one with little crystals when you look up close, as if my job is to gather and gather and gather to hold, to move the pieces from place to place, as if we can just keep on like this, little stones and me. We are alive and ancient together. Together we felt five blackbirds fly overhead when the sky was whitish or bluish, five blackbirds and the brushy tops of trees. And I saw a flat river stone there by my hand, with a stain or a shadow, a kind of haunt. Look at that. I did. I turned it over and over, and then I left it unto itself on the ground. Nonsense, this forever. Nonsense, my pockets of heaviness. Nonsense, these odd goodbyes. There are so many. The smell of leaves on the ground plus the smell of leaves in the air equals this hour of the afternoon when it's hard to remember the day or the name of the time we're in. We're all wearing capes of yellow light. The air is fuzzy, like the fluff a bird releases when it rearranges feathers or tends to new ones. When it's not flying, but in between flying. When I see two people sitting on the same log, shoulders touching where two other people sat the other day, and two others the time before, so that all our longings and languages begin to layer like transparencies, the lines and colors deeper as they mix and blur. This log I love for no other reason than how it's just here, around the corner from the parking lot, and people keep coming to sit on it, side by side, to talk. They're always talking, and there's a quiet water pooling, flowing, without really staying or going. And more stones, of course, more stones, and this fallen tree. And you can sit for whatever eternity. Well, thanks, Kelly. Uh, looks like we're running out of time quickly here, so I will just uh, throw in a, a tiny poem from my book, Many Things, Rapture. I wondered why so many empty parking spaces, then looked up and saw the lid of the sky had been removed, thousands of bodies gushing upwards. Most of the homeless were gone, 
Most of the small business owners were trying to find staff. I paid the meter, and certainly the police were still here. I tried to call home, but a cloud of cell phones enforced silence. Maybe the pawn shop with used guitars and guns is open. We have inherited the earth. Not all of us are meek. So yeah, so that's uh, Talking Earth for you this episode. Uh, do want to thank our my R3 poets, Endi Bogartigan, Joe Softy, and Kelly Terwilliger. Thanks to engineer angel Patrick Bocard, to KBU, and all who support it, and especially those of you who visit the Talking Earth. So I still have a, a minute to talk, and just want to, again, encourage poetry. And um, we need more venues here in town. I do want to thank the folks at Rose City Book Pub. More poetry readings have been happening there, some jazz as well. Uh, music of all kinds. It looks like uh, Rose City Book Pub people might be getting involved in a second location and uh, have events there too. So, yeah, if you happen to be the owner or manager of a club bar space that has performances, so please consider having poetry. It's sometimes hard to find someone to host it, but it's always easy to find poets. As I say, it's easier to find poets to read than it is to find people to come and listen to them. So again, thanks to everyone here who's been listening. Thanks to all the poets. There's a, the vi- vibrosity, the v- vibrance-ness, the vibrance of the words. And the words still tumble over themselves. There are so many of them. But uh, once again, I'm Dan Raphael, and uh, this is The Talking Earth. Thanks for visiting. Mm-hmm.